Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Come Follow Me for Teens. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is episode 14 and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and John chapters 5 through 6 under the premise of Be Not Afraid. As always, just a lot of great things to look at this week. I just love going through the first half of the New Testament just because it is so simple and so straightforward, easy to understand, and it's all about Christ. It just doesn't get any any better than that, than studying this this year. So this is a real treat that we have to go through all of these chapters and stories and and learn directly from the Master. As always, just a reminder uh, to be on the lookout for the three main things in your study, which are how does this lesson and, and story bear testimony of Christ, who He is and what He can do, and what principles are in this particular story or these chapters that I can take from those stories and, and chapters and apply them into my own life to help me make better choices and decisions. And then finally, what character traits do you see in both Christ and those that follow Him? understanding his character is paramount if we are going to develop that same character in ourselves. So it's one of my favorite things to look for and make sure that you're on the lookout for that as you go through your study this week. Now I wanted to start out today just by telling you a little story of, of something that happened to me back when I was a kid, something that you can probably all relate to because I'm almost certain it's happened to each of you that are listening as well. On one occasion, I just remember being in my basement uh, sometime in the early evening I was just watching TV, probably trying to unwind from, you know, a hard day of kindergarten or first grade, second grade. I know I was really young at at the time, and I was just in a a great place. Uh, I was just enjoying the show I was watching. I know that there was a little bit of a storm that was going on outside, but it didn't bother me at all until the power went out. And I know that each of you know that feeling where you are just in the middle of doing something, everything's great, and then all of a sudden, boom, the power's gone. And in my situation, because I was in the basement, it was completely black. I couldn't see anything. The TV went off, all the lights went off, and there I was. There were no windows uh, that I could have any light coming in from, and it was just completely pitch black. And it was almost like I instantly went from a place of, of peace to a state of complete fear just in an instant. As I couldn't see anything, I didn't know where to go. I remember I started calling out to my mom. And it wasn't until I started to see the faint glow of a candle making its way kind of down the stairs that I was finally able to start feeling a little bit of relief from the darkness and from the fear that had overtaken me. My mom had recognized I was down there all alone and so went and got a candle, lit it, and was coming down to check on me to make sure I was okay. And obviously, it must have been a very traumatic experience because I remember it so vividly all these years later. And and I wanted to start out by sharing that one because I, I imagine most of you can relate to that story and have had similar experiences that have caused you to, to feel similar feelings of fear, but also because fear is such a powerful emotion that we experience in mortality, one that really can disrupt our peace dramatically, and it's very common to, to experience As we go through life, there's all kinds of reasons that we have to fear. And it really is the fear of the unknown that can disrupt our peace more than anything else. 
especially as a young person. There are all kinds of things that I know that you will experience at your age that I did as well in terms of being afraid and that bring fear into our lives. There's the fear of, of not being accepted that is so prevalent among teenagers and young people today, or the fear of not having any friends, or the fear of not doing well in school or in some other extracurricular activity, or just the fear of not being good enough or smart enough or pretty enough, or really just living in the world that we live in today naturally brings can bring feelings of fear into our lives. In fact, it's our brain's number one job to keep us safe, which means keeping us from feeling feelings of fear. And in many ways, it works against us, especially as it relates to a story that I remember that Will Smith once told, where he told of an experience in which he went skydiving. And he kind of got talked into going by a lot of friends, to which almost immediately afterwards, he had the thought to himself, what in the world did I get myself into? And as it got closer and closer to that time where they were going to go up and jump out of an airplane and do the skydiving, he said there were so many opportunities where he just wanted to back out, but he knew that his friends wouldn't let him, so he continued to push forward, even up to the point where finally he found himself in an airplane, strapped to his instructor, about to go. And even at that moment, he said there was so much fear and anxiety, he didn't want to do it. He said that they go on the count of two instead of three, because on the count of three, everybody kind of freezes up and they don't go. And so out of, on the count of two, out they went. And he said something that was so interesting as a result of that experience. He said, it only took a few seconds for all of the fear to leave me. He said, after that experience, it was the most incredible, peaceful experience that he'd ever had, which helped him to come to understand one great truth, which is this. He said that he learned that God has placed the best things in life on the other side of fear. And when I heard that, I remember thinking that is an absolutely true principle, something that that I've experienced multiple times in my life, and I'm sure you have as well. There have been so many things that we needed to push through that involve fear that once we did, looking back, we were like, wow, what an amazing experience. I'm so glad that I pushed through those feelings of fear. Well, that story and and that principle kind of sets the context in a lot of ways for what you're going to be studying this week. Because again, the theme is be not afraid. And I know that there are things that each of you are experiencing, that you will experience, that are causing you fear. And God's number one message, whenever he senses that there's any kind of fear in any of those that he is speaking to or sends messengers to, is always be of good cheer and be not afraid. And you're going to see that in a big way in your study this week. And so that's one of the things I would invite you to take into your study is maybe make a mental note or even write down some of the things that have caused you fear currently in your life and take those into your study and look for doctrines and principles and truth that can help you deal with those kinds of feelings, those kinds of experiences, those kinds of fears that you have. In fact, all the stories this week have elements of fear worked into them. Stories like the healing of the man near the pool of Bethesda and the fear that he had of not being able to get the help that he needed to be healed. Uh, To the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the fear of not having enough to feed such a large group. And then, of course, the story of Peter walking on water and all the fear associated with that. In fact, that's going to be kind of the context that I want to share with you to kind of set all this up. Straight from the curriculum, which, which reads, What could have inspired Peter to leave the safety of his boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee during a boisterous storm? What led him to believe that if Jesus could walk on water, that he could too? We can't know for certain, but perhaps Peter understood that the Son of God came not just to do wonderful things for the people, 
but to empower people like Peter to do wonderful things too. I love that thought because so often we focus on Peter sinking. Well, in our study this week, we're, we'll definitely take a look at that, but we're also going to take a look at Peter being able to walk on water. And what an incredible experience. The only other person ever recorded to be able to do that. Jesus's invitation after all was, come follow me. Peter had accepted this invitation once and he was willing to accept it again, even if it meant facing his fears and doing something that seemed impossible. Perhaps the Lord will not ask us to step out of a boat in the middle of a storm or contribute our meager supply of bread when thousands need to eat, but he may ask us to accept directions even when we don't fully understand them. Whatever his invitations to us may be, they may sometimes seem surprising or even frightening, but miracles can happen if we, like Peter, set aside our fears, our doubts, our limited understanding, and follow him in faith. I just love that introduction to our study this week. And I don't know about you, but I am ready to tackle some fears <laughs> that, that we all have, that I have. And so let's let's get into it. We're going to first take a look at a few key things like we normally do throughout all these chapters. And I want to start in John chapter 5 today. So if you take a moment and turn to John chapter 5, and let's first take a look of the healing at the man near the pool of Bethesda. And that's verses 1 through 14. Now, we're not going to take the time to, to read these together. I'm going to invite you to pause and read these on your own. Looking for this thing in particular, look for how was this man trying to heal from his suffering and from his fears? And how might we sometimes do the same? I think that's a, a very valuable thing to look for as you go through and study. So if you want to, pause it, read through that. And, uh, and then we're going to look at a couple key points of this particular story. Okay, now the context for the story is that the Pool of Bethesda was really kind of a pagan area of worship where the, it was thought that at some point an angel would come down and, and touch the waters and every time they kind of bubbled up, it was like almost like a spring, the way that I understand it, that people that had sickness or infirmities would uh, try to get themselves into the water to be healed and to be cured. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. We don't have a lot of other understanding on that. But this man in particular was lame in such a way that he couldn't get himself to the pool whenever they started to, the water started to, to bubble and to be troubled. Now it records in verse 5 that a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. Now that's a long time to suffer with anything. Verse 6 simply records, when Jesus saw him. And I always made sure to put a CT for character trait above that. Again, Christ has the ability to see people to see their suffering, to see what they're going through. And I love that about him. And again, verse 6 records, When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man then answered in verse 7, And I would invite you to mark this, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And I think the question that's worth considering in this is where is this man placing his faith to be healed? Is it in another person? Is it in the waters? Whatever it is, it certainly isn't in Christ. And I think the next question then that is beneficial for us to ask ourselves is what are some of the ways that we also seek for healing and help outside of Christ? And I think that's the question that we want to ask ourselves because it is so easy to get caught up in thinking that other things will help bring life to us, will help bring happiness to us, will help bring healing and support and all the things that we want in life apart from Christ. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said that 
human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. And again, I think that that is such a great thought and question to ask ourselves, especially as a young person, because I know how easy it is. I was there once myself to turn to things outside and apart from God to feel better about myself and about life, thinking that they will bring greater happiness. If I, if I just have a, a nice car or more friends or I do better at sports or athletics, then I'm going to find the happiness that I've always wanted to find. And the reality is that all those things are temporary and they do not bring lasting happiness. And that is why God has to be at the center of what we do and everything. And probably one of the reasons he invites us all to seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else. Because he knows that happiness cannot be found apart from him. Now, there's some other great principles in that story as well, but I'll leave those for you to find. Um, the, the next thing that I would invite you to look for here in John chapter 5 is that the relationship between the Heavenly Father and each of his children, each of us, is really meant to be a, a sacred one and a special one. And there is a, a group of verses in here where Christ gives us an inspiring model to follow in our relationship with Heavenly Father and how to connect with Him and how to see Him. So I would invite you to read John chapter 5, verses 16 through 47. And again, we won't take the time to read that here, but I would invite you to pause it, read through that, and mark or note each instance of the word Father. How does the Son honor the Father? How can you follow His example in the way that He does that? What do you learn about how the Father feels about the Son? and therefore how he feels about us. What are you inspired to do to strengthen your relationship with your Heavenly Father through Christ? And one of the reasons I think this is so valuable to do is that Joseph Smith once said, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. And one of the most important things that we are here to do is to learn who we are. And that will not happen apart from learning who God is. And so these are some great verses to help us better understand who God is by better understanding Christ. One of the things I'll just point out in, in these verses that I would invite you to mark, it has to do with this phrase that I often hear young people say. And if you're listening, teenagers, I know that you've said this multiple times, but it's something along the lines of, I'm just doing this or just doing that because it's what my parents want me to do. In fact, I've heard that is also for a reason that, that many young men and young women have gone on missions or that they're going to church on Sunday or that they're coming to seminary. It's because it's what my parents want me to do. Almost as if that's a negative thing. Now, are there potentially better reasons to, to do that? Well, yeah, we, we eventually want to do things for ourselves. But I want you to understand, young people, that if that is your motivation for doing some of those things, give yourself a pat on the back because you are in very good company, young people. In fact, the best of company in doing things for that particular reason. Take a look at verse 30 as an example where the Savior says this. He says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Do you see that? He, as he mentioned several times, only does those things which the Father wants him to do. He does his Father's will. And so when you do things because you're, you feel like your parents want you to do them, even if you do them a little begrudgingly, know that, again, you are in good company. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. There are a couple of great stories and principles to look in this chapter. 
And I want to begin with verses 1 through 14, where John the Baptist is killed. And keep in mind that this is the Savior's cousin, and he had an incredible love and appreciation for John the Baptist. He was more than just a cousin. He was the prophet sent to really prepare the way for Christ to come. So there was this incredible connection and love and respect for each other. And when the Savior gets news of his death, take a look at, at what he does in verse 13. Verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, speaking of John's execution, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. He needed time alone to process the grief and the pain and the suffering and, and sadness of losing someone that he loved so much. And I think that's a character trait that we need to see because there are times where we also need to take time for ourselves. And young people, I think this is one of the most important things you can learn as a young person, especially being under the, the stress and the pressures that I know that you are at your age. There will be times where you need to take time for yourself to process through those emotions and don't be afraid to do that. Now, even in trying to do that, look at what happens, which again speaks to the Savior's character. Back in verse 13, and when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. He couldn't have a moment's peace at times. In verse 14, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them. Even when he was in a place where he needed compassion, he was moved towards compassion for others. And that is an absolute wonderful character trait that we need to see in Christ. And I would encourage you to put a CT above that line. And what did he do? Well, he went about healing their sick. And I think in doing that, young people, he's also showing us a pattern for how to heal things in ourselves. It's one of the messages that I've been going around speaking to young people about in schools is that one of the best ways to feel better about ourselves is to help other people feel better. And yes, Christ needed some time alone, but I wonder if healing others wasn't also a way of healing himself and the hurt and the pain that he was going through. Just something there for you to consider as you go through some of your own struggles and pains. Now, one of the other stories that we'll jump to is starting verse 15 through about 21 is one of my favorite stories in all of the New Testament, and that's feeding the 5,000. This one I do want to read together. So let's read together. I want you to look for and mark anything that stands out to you about the way the Savior administers this particular miracle and the way that it comes about. Starting in verse 15, it reads, And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals or food. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. <laughs> and they said unto him, Ah, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat, and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now at this point I would ask you to, to pause and just have a discussion, if there are those of you that are listening together, to what is it that you like most about this particular miracle? What stands out to you in the way that it was performed? Now, after discussing that, let me give you a few things just to mark and to, to point out. And the first is in verse 19, where he commands the multitude to sit down. 
He does the same thing in Mark chapter 6, verse 39, where he tells them to sit down, but he also adds to, he organizes them into companies. In those two words, it's almost as if he is telling them, in facing this huge dilemma, to be still. Sit down, be still, trust that everything will do all right, and you do everything that you can. You organize yourselves as best you can and trust that I will do what you can't. And so that's what they do. They all sit down. There's a stillness about it. They organize themselves in companies, and then the miracle happens. In John chapter 6, verse 9, I'd invite you to mark this back in, in that chapter, is that we learn where the five barley loaves and two small fishes came from. And it was simply a lad, a little boy that was there that happened to have those particular things. Now, obviously, one of the great messages and lessons for all of us, especially for you as young people, is that here's a young person that doesn't have very much to offer. But the miracle and the power of Christ is that he can take what we have and make so much more of it. That what we have is enough. It's enough in whatever situation we might be in for whatever we need whenever we turn it over to God and trust him with it. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once said a great quote that goes along with this. He said, God does not begin by asking us about our ability, but only about our availability. And if we then prove our dependability, he will increase our capability. Young people, I want that message and hope that that message will sink into your hearts because I know how easy it is, at your age especially, as it is for all of us, to feel inadequate to feel that we're not good enough, that we don't have enough, that we're not capable enough. But that is not what God asks of us. I know as a young missionary, I felt that as well. Like, I don't know enough. I'm not equipped enough to go out and and teach the gospel to the world. But that is not what God is asking for. He just wants us to be available for him, to give ourselves to him, to give whatever it is that we have and trust him that he can take it and make more out of it. That is a miracle that I know you will see play out in your life over and over and over again. It's one of the amazing things that God can do in almost any situation, really in any situation, is take what we have and make so much more of it, if we'll just give it to Him and trust Him with it. And so that is a a wonderful truth and principle that I hope that you'll take out of that. And think of ways in your own life, there'll be some questions coming up after that kind of go along the lines with this, but what are some of the things that he's asking you to give him now? Some of the ways you don't feel that you have enough to give, that that you can take the, the message and the miracle and the principle from this particular story and apply it into your own life and situation. As one last thought in verse 12 of John 6, it also references it here in Matthew 14 a little bit, but the Savior made sure to gather up all the fragments that were left so that nothing would be lost. And that's another great character trait in Christ. He does not waste things. And I think we would do well to follow. If we're going to follow him, that is an attribute that we ought to develop in ourselves, to be prudent with all the things that we have, to be mindful of what we have, and to not just waste whatever it is that we've been given, whether it's it's money or energy or possessions that we have, to be good stewards of all of them. So there's a great character trait there. The last thing in verse 23 is this particular miracle ends is that at that point he sends the multitudes away and he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. And I'll point this out again that even with all of his compassion that he has for others, he still needed to and he made sure to take time for himself. And we would do well to do the same. Now, the next story is uh, another one of my favorites. It's so amazing. All these are together. 
But verses 24 through 33 here in Matthew 14 recount the amazing miracle of walking on water. Peter walking on water and Christ walking on water. Now, I know that there probably isn't anyone that is listening that hasn't tried that in some way or some form in their own life, right? Whenever I was growing up as a kid and would get into a swimming pool, yeah, a lot of times I would run and jump, but you better believe there were a number of times I just thought, I'm going to try to see if I have enough faith to walk on this water in the swimming pool or this lake that I was in or across this river, wherever it was. And sure enough, I would try to step in and walk on the water only to sink to the very bottom of the pool. Apparently, still have a lot of faith that I need to develop in myself, as we all do. But this is just one of those amazing miracles that has always stayed with us since the first time that we heard it. Now, it's worth pointing out in verse 22 that straight away Jesus commanded his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him and to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. I wonder if he did not know what was about to happen and maybe in some ways set it up himself, which brings us to a, another kind of string of, of thoughts that we'll take a look at in just a moment. But after commanding them to get in this boat and depart, verse 13, 23 sorry, is that he sent the multitudes away and went up alone to pray. And then it's here where we get to the apostles who are now in the boat, but they're also in the middle of a storm. In verse 22, it records, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Elder Bruce R. McConkie and Millennial Messiah records that at this point in time in their journey, that they had probably been rowing for somewhere between 8 and 10 hours, and that they were only now a few miles off from shore, they weren't getting anywhere. Verse 25 records, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. One of the things I would encourage you to mark is the fourth watch because the way that they reckon their, their time, especially as, at night, is they had different watches of the night, which were broken up in about two or three hour segments. So it would be like the first watch was from about 10 to 12, the second watch from about 12 to 2, and then the third watch, 2 to 4, and then the fourth watch, 4 to 6. And it's in that fourth watch where Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Let's finish reading this. And the thing that I would invite you to look for as you do is what was it really that, that allowed Peter to get out of the boat to then walk above the wind and the waves and the water and to keep from sinking? And what was it that finally caused him to sink? I think there's some great lessons in that for us. But starting in verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now, as a cross-reference, write down Mark chapter 6, verse 48, where Mark records the telling of this story, and he points out a couple things that Matthew doesn't have included in here. Number one is that Christ, it records, that he saw them toiling in rowing. They were never fully alone, or it wasn't known what they were going through. The Savior was always there watching them. And I think that's comforting for all of us to know because when we face the storms that we're in at times where it feels like we're in trouble, that we're going to sink, that we don't know how things are going to work out, a lot of times our fear comes from feeling alone, that no one is there for us, that God doesn't care. But yet this story illustrates just the opposite is true. The Savior was always watching them, even while they were struggling. He was watching and he was aware of it, which means he was allowing for it to happen until the right time in the right way in which he could teach them something from it. Now Mark also records in the telling of the story that as the Savior is out there walking, that he would have passed by them had they not called out to him. 
which teaches another great principle that sometimes the Savior will wait for us to reach out to him. Yeah, as the scriptures record, he stands at the door and knocks, but he will not open the door to us. He will wait for us to open the door to him. So as they called out to him, he responds in verse 27. And of course, this is where the theme comes from and something that we all need to make sure that we mark. As Jesus says, but straight away, Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. What a powerful statement that is. And, and kind of the thought is, is the Savior inviting them and maybe even teaching them that they can be happy even in a storm? The storm hasn't been calmed yet, but what is he telling them? Be of good cheer. And what does he then teach can help bring that cheer even in a storm? The knowledge that it is I, that I am here, that I am with you. And so you need not be afraid. There are so many wonderful truths just in that statement, young people, especially for you in the challenges that you go through and the fears that you face as you come to understand that you can still find happiness in your storms when you find that Christ is in the storm with you. Which kind of brings us to one of the thoughts I'd like you to consider. And we don't really know the answer to this, but is this potentially a storm that Christ caused to happen himself? Was this an opportunity that he wanted to to orchestrate, to teach his apostles, and maybe even especially Peter, an incredibly valuable lesson. I think it would be wrong for us to say that God causes every storm that comes into our lives. That's not true. Sometimes they're just caused by our poor choices or the poor choices of, uh, of others, or they just are a part of living in a fallen world. But I also wonder if there aren't some storms that happen in our lives that aren't orchestrated by God to help us to learn, to help us to grow, and to help us better find him in them. Elder Richard G. Scott once said something that has always stuck with me when he said, Some trials are teaching moments. Just when all seems to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously. When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where he wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ, trust in his teachings, trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings for happiness now and for a purposeful, supremely happy eternal existence. And to trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit, your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience. He then said, Your Father in heaven and His beloved Son love you perfectly, and they would not require you to experience a moment more of difficulty than is absolutely needed for your personal benefit or for that of those you love. Such a wonderful thought as we take into consideration some of those things that come into our lives, like storms, that cause us to fear. Might they be an opportunity to grow? Which is exactly what Peter is about to experience. Because looking now at verses 28 and 29, look at the invitation that the Savior gives to Peter. Verse 28, Matthew records, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And I just wrote the word grow above that. Here's an invitation. Peter, you have the opportunity to grow, and I'm inviting you to do that now. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, 
he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Please, young people, make sure to mark that phrase. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Again, we don't focus enough on what Peter was able to do. Yes, in the next few verses, we're going to see that he sank. But until that point came, he was literally walking on water. How amazing is that? Verse 30, but when he saw, and here's what I want you to mark, is is you can see what it was that caused him to start to sink. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What did he do? He took his eyes off of Christ. When we focus on the problems instead of on him, you and I will start to sink. But on the flip side, when we focus on him, when we look to him, we can overcome anything. I think that's one of the reasons I've always loved the phrase, look to God and live. Look to God and stay on top of your problems. Look to God and avoid from sinking in despair as a result of some of the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. Look to God and walk above your problems and on the water. It reminds me a little bit of a story I heard some time ago of a professor that administered a a simple test to his class. And the test was just simply this. On the piece of paper they passed out was just a black dot. Just a little black dot right in the middle. And he asked his class to basically write about what they saw. And as he collected the papers, he made the observation that every single student in that class had written about the black dot, which is very natural to do. If If I were in this class, I probably would have done the same thing. But he made the point how easy it is to focus on the dark spaces really in life as well when there is so much white and good things around it, right? That none of them wrote about the white space. They all instinctively wrote about the dark. And I think that's one of the great things that we all can learn, especially you at a young age, is to learn to look towards and to see those things that are good in your life despite the things that aren't. Because I'm really, the longer I've lived my life, I've come to see that there's always been so much more that is good than what is bad. But yet it's the bad, it's the dark spots that tend to draw our attention to the most. So how do we do that? How do we focus better on the positive instead of the negative? Well, as a life coach, one of the things that I always recommend, and it's amazing, amazing to see the effects that this particular simple practice has on people, is to focus on gratitude. Every single day, young people, I would invite you to write down three things that you're grateful for from the day. And, and to follow President Irene's counsel that he gave some time ago, when and something that he said worked so well for him, he said, at the end of each day, I would allow my mind to go back over the day and look for the ways in which the hand of God was seen in my life. And that is a powerful question. Write down the things you're grateful for, but also write down, how have you seen God's hand in your life today? Being able to do that will help you to better see that he's always there, that you're not alone, and it will help you to eliminate fear because you will better see, one, that there's so much good in life, and two, that God is always there for you, which is so good. (laughs) Now, even when we fall short of that and begin to get caught up in the real world problems that we have, the real challenges and the real fears that we all experience, And we start to feel ourselves sink as a result of them. Verse 31 always offers a lot of hope to each and every one of us. As Peter began to sink in verse 30, he cries unto the Lord saying, Lord, save me. And what does Christ do? In verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and pulled him up out of the water and said unto him, O thou of little faith, 
wherefore didst thou doubt? And I don't see this as a criticism, but as a teaching moment. Peter, I'm here. I'm with you. Why did you start to doubt that everything would be okay? Why did you take your eyes off of me? Stay focused on me. Keep your faith in me and everything will be okay. Oh, I just love, love, love that story. And again, there's so many other things that can be learned from it and things that I I know that you will see personally for you, especially as they relate to your own life. But hopefully some of those were helpful. Now to end with today, um, just a short kind of key principle that kind of I think ties into all of this very well. Let's go to John chapter six uh, to end with today. John also records here the feeding of the 5,000, Peter walking on water, which, by the way, you may want to mark verse 21 of John 6, because look at this other miracle that that really isn't well known or discussed much. But once the Savior gets back in the boat and, and saves Peter from sinking, look at what happens almost immediately. One, yes, the storm is calm. But verse 21, then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Prior, prior to that, they haven't traveled very far. They were stuck in the middle of the storm. But as soon as they allowed Christ to come into their boat, they were immediately on the other side at land. It's another kind of small miracle that I didn't recognize until I studied this. But again, a great lesson for us in how quickly things can change when we have the Savior with us in our lives and invite him into our boat, into our lives. Now, this particular part we're going to take a look at deals with experiencing hard things and sometimes having questions or doubts about faith, about the gospel, even about the church. Because there's a very interesting thing that happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. Take a look at verse, let's start with verse 26. People are still seeking Christ, especially more so after that miracle, but it's not for the right reasons. Look at verse 26 and what is the reason the Savior points out that all these people are now seeking him? Well, it records, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Here's this large group of people that are seeking him because they want a life of ease. They want him to provide the basic necessities for them. He wants them to continue to provide miracles where he feeds them and takes care of them. This is not the kind of disciple that he is looking for. And look at these next few verses as he begins to teach them something, but he teaches them something that's very hard for them to understand. Verse 27, he says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Verse 28, they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Basically get this this meat, this food, that I think they're still caught up in. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Okay, so then they said therefore unto him in verse 30, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Verse 31, Our fathers did eat man in the desert as as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they want? (laughs) Give us more bread, basically. Verse 32, then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He is referring to himself as the bread of life. 
In fact, one of the cool little hidden metaphors that ties into all this is Bethlehem, where he was born, in Greek literally means, in translation, the house of bread. And here is the bread of heaven that is born in the house of bread for all the world to partake of. Verse 34, And they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. We want this bread. Okay, well, verse 35, this is where it gets hard. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now he's teaching them a little bit that, of what he taught the woman at the well. The question I invite you to consider is what is he referring to that he says they will never hunger for or that they'll never thirst for? And really he's trying to teach them that we'll lose our thirst for things of the world, things that are temporary, things that really will never satisfy. Verse 48 through 51, let's jump to that and read as he explains a little bit more about what this bread is as it relates to himself. Verse 48, again, is the phrase, I am the bread of life. And I invite you to mark that. 49, your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. In other words, the physical food that you'll be given and that you receive will not sustain you in the end. But verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. The bread that I will give you will help you to live forever. Same with the water, right? Verse 51, and this is the hard. This is again where it's getting hard. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, now they're getting confused because look at verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, um, okay, but how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That that doesn't make sense. Verse 53, Jesus doubles down on that statement. He says, Then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, and drinketh his blood, ye have no life in you. Now, of course, we know now what he is referring to. As he's referring to the sacrament, we partake of his flesh and his blood, metaphorically, every time we partake of the sacrament, every Sunday. But they didn't know that that is what he was teaching them. And I think he was teaching them something hard and difficult for a purpose, probably to filter out those that were following him for the right reasons and those that were not. Because look at the result of that teaching in verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, those that had been following him, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to us. I don't understand it. Who can hear it? And then if you'll jump to verse 66 in what I think is one of the saddest scriptures in all of scripture, um, John records in 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. He gave them something that they couldn't really understand. What did they do? They left. They left him. Verse 67, he asks almost heartbreakingly as he sees many of these people that he has worked with, that have followed him, that he has loved, as they see, as he sees them leave him, he then asks to the twelve this powerful question. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? You could almost just hear the heartbreak in those words and in that, that question. Will you leave me too? That's one of the questions I wrote next to that verse for me. Is there anything that could get me to leave Christ? Is there anything that could get me to leave his church? Now, young people, I wanted to end with this because we live in a very interesting time in the world's history where there is so much information out there and really so much information that also isn't true. And I have known person after person 
that has come across things that didn't quite make sense, come across questions that they had that they just couldn't seem to get answers to, come across the experiences that they had in their life that didn't make sense, and have found reasons in all of that to leave Christ by leaving his church. And I don't want to see that happen to any of you today, which is one of the reasons I wanted to end with this. Please understand that yes, there will be times and there will be moments where you will have questions. You'll have questions about your faith. You'll have questions about the church. You'll have questions about the history of the church. You'll just have questions. And please know that that's okay. It's okay to have questions. But don't let those questions rob you of your faith and of so much that is good that you've already experienced. President Uchtdorf pleaded with us in that same vein that whenever we have those kind of doubts or questions, to please doubt our doubts before we doubt our faith. I'm confident that at some point for each of us, we will answer that question for ourselves. When we go through hard things, when we have doubts, when we have questions, when we experience storms in our life, we will answer that question that Christ asks his disciples and his apostles, will ye also go away? And my answer when that time comes for me, which it has multiple times in my life, I always want to be able to answer like Peter in verses 68 and 69. Please mark these verses. In 68, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that will always be my answer. To where else can I go? I have found Christ better in this church and in my faith than anywhere else I could possibly go. In this church, I have found the words of life. I have found Christ's words. I have found him as living bread and living water. Every time I hear an apostle or a prophet speak, I my faith in Christ is strengthened. And I recognize that they are words of life, that almost as if I am receiving them from him. In fact, we all have an opportunity coming up, don't we, to again listen to the words of our living prophet and apostles. And in applying this particular principle, I would invite you, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have concerns, to take them with you into conference and see if you can't hear and feel and recognize enough good that maybe even if you don't get all your answers or your questions answered, that you could put them on the shelf at least for a little bit until one day they do get answered. He has given us a prophet and apostles to better find him and so that he could better feed us of his living bread and his living water. There's a reason why water is always flowing during general conference at the conference center and at temples for that matter. It's symbolic of the living water that is flowing out of those experiences and out of those places and out of those words that are delivered. This is one of the reason why in organizing the feeding of the 5,000, he had his apostles feed the the people. See what he was doing? He was teaching them the order of being fed, not just physically, but spiritually as well. One of the best ways to have access to his help, to his support, and to his power is through them. One of the best ways to have access to his words, which are the words of life, are through their words as he delivers them to them. As he says in the Doctrine and Covenants, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Peter recognized where the words of life were coming from. And he didn't want to go anywhere else to get him, even if he didn't understand what the Savior was teaching him at that moment, which was a very hard doctrine to understand. And I hope when those challenging moments and difficult moments and questioning moments and moments of doubt come to each of you, that you also will be able to answer that question, will you also go away, with, to whom shall we go? 
who else has the words of eternal life? And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and this is his church and gospel. Will there be moments of fear in our lives? Yes. But that is one of the blessings that the gospel brings. Is like a candle. It cuts through the darkness and brings light to us and peace so that we can better weather the storms, we can solve our problems, we can find the healing and help that we need. Now, as a few key questions to journal and discuss, let me just give you a few to consider for today. First would be, what is God asking you to do or to give that seems like you can't or that you don't have enough to give? How have you experienced the miracle of the five loaves and two fish in your own life? How have you seen God take what you have to offer and make so much more from it? How has he helped you rise above the wind and the waves and the storms in your own life? How has focusing on him helped keep you from sinking in despair or being overcome by your trials in life? How have you felt or experienced him coming to you during a storm and speaking the words, Be of good cheer, fear not, for it is I. How have you seen hard truths in circumstances cause others to leave their faith and to even leave the church? And how can you better doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith? How have the words of life spoken by our prophet and apostles helped you to answer your doubts like Peter, to whom shall we go? And how have their words helped you to more fully believe in Christ and who he is? How have you been able to find life in him through them? And maybe some application actions you can take. Maybe you can make a list of those things that have helped you to keep your eyes on Christ, especially when things get hard in life, and resolve to keep them in place whenever things get hard again. When things get hard or you have questions about your faith or the church, what can you do to remember the words of life that have been taught to you so far? To remember all the good that you've seen and experienced so that it doesn't get lost by something that is bad. How has the church helped you to better build your foundation on Christ? And then maybe this one, how can you use the Book of Mormon to help build your foundation on Christ and make it more central to your testimony? As President Benson said, there is a difference between a convert who has their testimony of faith built on the foundation of Christ through the Book of Mormon and one who does not. That is one of the reasons why I've been able to weather personally all the questions and concerns and doubts and crises of faith that I've had is because I know for myself that that book is true and no one will ever be able to convince me otherwise because I know that it contains the words of life and through it and through all the other scriptures that we have, I have come to believe and I'm sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so can you. So I guess the message of all this is the next time the lights go out on you and you find yourself in darkness, whether it's figuratively or literally, right? But especially when you experience hard things and you go through challenges and you have questions, and you have concerns, you don't feel like you're enough or that you have enough to offer. Remember these stories and remember that whatever we give to Christ will always be enough. And that with him in our lives, we can be happy and choose to be of good cheer, even in the storms that we're in, because we know that he's with us and that he will help us. Like Peter, when we focus on him and focus on the positive and all that is good in our life, do amazing and wonderful things. Because not only did he come here to do amazing and wonderful things, but he came here to help us to do them as well. As always, remember that that person, as President Benson said, is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This, as always, has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, 
is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow Him better this week and become better as we follow Him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.